0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Door, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Joshua Esler about his new book, Tibetan Buddhism Among Han Chinese, Mediation and Superscription of the Tibetan Tradition in Contemporary Chinese Society, published by Lexington Books in 2020. Dr. Esler, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, thank you.
0: Great. Um, I wonder if you began the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in East Asian Studies and Buddhist Studies?
1: Yeah, so um, originally I'm from uh, Australia, but I was born in Bangladesh. Uh, then I lived in different parts of Asia and also the Middle East. Um, so I've always been interested in Asia, Asian Studies in, in general. Uh, so I studied my PhD in Asian Studies at the University of Western Australia. Um, specifically in the department of uh, Chinese studies. And uh, the focus, uh, particular focus of my PhD was on the topic of uh, the adaptation of Tibetan Buddhism to wider Chinese society. Um, So at present, I'm working as a lecturer at uh, Sheridan Institute of Higher Education in Perth, Western Australia. Um, And the areas I'm teaching are Asian studies, history and sociology.
0: Thank you. Um, Yeah, we don't really get a lot of scholars from Australia, so it's really exciting to have you.
1: Especially Western Australia, maybe. We are right on the the most isolated city in the world, in Perth. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, Yeah, so it's really great to have you.
1: Thank you, thank you.
0: So I guess before we dig into your fantastic book, uh, can you please tell us about how you came to write this um, monograph, right Tibetan Buddhism on Han Chinese, and maybe a little bit how you managed to get... More than 80 interviews uh, through your ethnographic work.
1: Yeah, so I've, yeah, I've always been interested in uh, Tibetan culture and language. Um, so this interest began when I was a, um, a child. I used to visit Nepal with my family on holiday there. And um, of course, in Nepal, there's a big uh, Tibetan refugee uh, community. Um, so I was always fascinated as a child to hear um, the chanting in the monasteries and to, to see the monks um, there. Um, so so yeah, I was fascinated with Tibetan culture and this became more entrenched as I grew older. Um, at university, I was able to study um, just, uh, I wasn't able to study really anything about Tibet in my undergraduate course as we don't have a Tibetan studies program here in West Australia. Um, but during my PhD, I was able under Asian studies to uh, within the Chinese department to study, Uh, This topic on how Tibetan Buddhism is spreading among uh, Han Chinese uh, people. Yeah, so that's how my interest grew. And uh, yeah, I met my interlocutors through a a variety of uh, different ways in each location. Um, So my fieldwork was carried out in, as I said in the book, in Beijing, Gyal Tang in Deqing, Tibetan Autonomous Prefecture, uh, Hong Kong, and Taipei in Taiwan. Um, So the interlocutors were lamas and Tibetan lamas and monks uh, and also Chinese and other minority practitioners and lay Tibetans. Uh, so in Taipei and Hong Kong, it was quite straightforward to engage with interlocutors. I just called up basically all of the Tibetan centers uh, in these two locations and asked the head lama if I could speak with him and some of his Chinese followers. So um, in Hong Kong and Taiwan, it's very straightforward, but in uh, Beijing and Gieltang, usually i would meet uh a handful of interlocutors and then they would interview uh, introduce me to uh their wider networks and it grew from there so kind of snowballed uh in on the mainland um so it's more had to be a bit more careful to how i uh, met interlocutors on the mainland but um yes yeah, slowly once you meet people then they have their own networks and you get introduced to other people
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's really impressive uh, the number of diverse voices and narratives that you're able to collect in the book. Um, so, your book opens with a perceptive observation on Tibetan Buddhism in contemporary China um, that it's facing ongoing restrictions and challenges imposed by the state, but also at the same time, it has now entered mainstream Chinese society with a growing middle class and even celebrity following. Uh, so can you tell us briefly first, how has Tibetan Buddhism become mainstream amongst the middle class uh, Chinese people despite state restrictions?
1: Yeah, so finally yeah, Tibetan Buddhism in its home environment in the Tibetan autonomous region and certain other Tibetan autonomous prefectures is under restrictions and surveillance, um, particularly within Gelug mon- monasteries. Uh, so this is explored quite thoroughly in John Power's book, um, The Buddha Party. Even at Lharungar Buddhist Institute in Sichuan province now, um, this institute that previously enjoyed more freedoms um, is now under more uh, restrictions and surveillance as well. Um, but in wider China, on the other hand, we see uh, Tibetan Buddhism has a lot more freedom uh, in many ways. Um, and I think this is because Tibetan Buddhism within uh, Chinese societies has become more uh, individuated rather than a type of collectivist uh, practice, especially in mainland China. Um, And I think there's some similarities here with how it's become individuated also in the West in certain circles. Uh, Yeah, so so Chinese practitioners, they can practice at home or in any secluded place that they they choose um, without anyone even knowing they are Tibetan Buddhists. Um, So even some party officials, for example, they uh, they apparently can practice in secret in their own homes they have their own uh, private altar in their home and they can uh, meditate without and, and carry out rituals without anyone knowing that they are doing this so um, and as Dan Yu points out uh, the practice of for example Zogchen, uh from the Ningma School is particularly popular in mainland China um, given that it's, it's this type of uh, individuated practice so um Yeah, and also if you, as long as one is following a Tibetan lama who is not blacklisted by the state uh, and who has the right political affiliations, there should be no problem for uh, Chinese practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, Yeah, further, also the the high profile celebrities who are now following Tibetan uh, lamas, this also gives these lamas a further kind of red stamp of approval um, in addition to uh, state approval because they are they have. um, their own celebrity status, and that kind of uh, keeps them safe as well. Um, Yeah, Also, the government uh, census that goes out, which uh, as Chinese citizens, their um, religious affiliation uh, doesn't tend to differentiate between Chinese and Tibetan Buddhists among uh, Han Chinese citizens. Um, So you can tick the box as being a Buddhist without saying you are Tibetan Buddhist uh, which also helps them keep a low profile. So the state may be worried about Chinese following so-called separatist lamas, on the other hand, or lamas who give teachings in private homes in eastern China. Uh, but it seems according to the Chinese constitution, there's really nothing which states that this is illegal practice. So yeah, by and large, they're not really an underground group. They they fit a more gray area, not be, really being uh, having the red stamp of approval by not being blacklisted as well. So within that kind of gray area, they're more free to practice their faith and to um, kind of negotiate restrictions.
0: Yeah, thank you. This is definitely a very understudied area uh, that you're highlighting uh, in this book. And um, an important idea you introduced early on in the book uh, to explain the popularization of Tibetan Buddhism in contemporary China is the idea of mendelization. Um, how the Tibetan Buddhist clergy have found ways to work within Chinese restrictions uh, in their effort to re mandalize not only Tibetan cultural regions but also areas outside of geographic Tibet. Can you tell us more about this idea of re mandalization?
1: Yeah, so th- this idea is actually taken from uh, Charlene Mackley's work, uh, in which she explores how the Tibetan religious li- elite. Uh, negotiating their place within uh, greater China. Um, so, of course, a mandala is this uh, con- concentric circles of power uh, surrounding a central deity who is visualized in Tibetan Buddhist uh, initiation rites. Um, of course, yeah, the land of Tibet itself is considered to be a, a giant mandala with important monasteries and, and retinues of beings uh, sitting at key points throughout this landscape with the locus of spiritual power and temporal power being in the hands of reincarnate lamas. Um, so in post-1950, and especially post-1950, 59 Tibet, um, the temporary temporal aspect of this power has largely been replaced with uh, Chinese state power. Uh, but during the reform and opening period of the 1980s, especially, um, monasteries began to be re-established and we have reincarnate lamas uh, who were key to this reconstruction and resurrection of Tibetan Buddhism after the Cultural Revolution. So in 1981, uh, Jigme Punso uh, established the Larungar Buddhist Institute in Sotar in uh, Sichuan province. And this has been a really influential um, center for the spread of Tibetan Buddhism among Chinese disciples to this day. Uh, So this is a good example of what I term following Makli's use, the remantelization of not only Tibetan cultural regions, but also outside geographic uh, Tibet. Um, so Jigme, punzog and other uh, subsequent Tibetan masters from Larungar, uh, they have visited sacred sites outside Tibet proper, uh, located in the Chinese landscape such as Wu uh, Taishan. And uh, we could see these visits and recruitment of Chinese disciples as a kind of continuation of the activities of Tibetan Buddhist masters in the past who did the same thing yeah by widening the kind of symbolic mandalic spheres of spiritual power beyond Tibet itself and so as they expand this spiritual power to regions beyond Tibet a Tibetan worldview centered around these kind of giants of the faith is being adopted to an extent among uh, Chinese practitioners so um so as i mentioned in the introduction to the book uh, these practitioners although they are separated from their spiritual masters um, and often from each other as well, uh, by geographic distance throughout China, they take part in a type of uh, shared imagined community. So they partake in the same rituals, they chant in the same sacred languages, they follow similar masters, they aspire to the Bodhisattva ideal of giving self for others and wishing happiness and freedom from suffering for others. Um, as for themselves. And so this worldview um, stands in stark contrast to the materialist world or, uh, worldview around them um, that is perceived to be the antithesis to all of this. Um, so of course, this remandalization, which is mediated through these Tibetan masters, is not a straightforward process in mainland China, uh, given uh, state restrictions and surveillance. Um, it's, it's rather a process of negotiating uh, ways through these restrictions to influence uh, these disciples beyond the geographic space of Tibet. So, of course, in the West, this process has been much more straightforward, with a few, if any, uh, government restrictions to curtail the spread of Tibetan Buddhism there. So, this this is what I meant by yeah, mandalizing uh, beyond the uh, Tibetan geographic sphere.
0: Well, thank you for um, clarifying that. Um, And in chapter one, it's also argued that Tibetan Buddhism actually offers an alternative worldview, right, in addition to this alternative, I guess, um, imagine a community geographical uh, landscape that you argue, um, an alternative worldview to Han China's religious life. Uh, So what is Tibetan Buddhism's answers to the so-called China's spiritual crisis, quote unquote, a, a phenomenon that has been sort of pointed out by quite a few scholars recently?
1: Yeah, so many of the Chinese interlocutors uh, I met, um, they saw Tibetan Buddhism as really the highest form of spirituality there is, um, while others saw Chan Buddhism in particular as being on an equal level, although although they saw Chan Buddhism as being less accessible, uh, given the perceived lack of genuine uh, Chinese Buddhist mon- uh, Chinese Buddhist masters in contemporary China, and also due to the conversion of uh, Chinese Buddhist monasteries and temples into uh, tourist sites. So Tibetan Buddhism is perceived as being particularly potent, um, both in regards to its insights and the rituals um, for solving mundane concerns which it um, which it has within uh, its practice. So uh, it kind of fills the vacuum in the Buddhist scene in China uh, with its charismatic uh, reincarnate lamas and their lineages which I believe to be unbroken since the time of the Buddha and subsequent uh, spiritual giants such as Nagarjuna and Milarepa. Um, so the worldview centered around these unbroken lineages is one based on the Bodhisattva aspiration of compassion for all sentient beings, the visualization of every sentient as one's mother in a past life, yeah, the visualization of one's enemy as a precious jewel which should be held dear um, as one's guru, So all of these ideas are found within a Tibetan Buddhist worldview, and they seem to stand in stark contrast to the indifference uh, towards and even exploitation of others found in um, an entirely materialist worldview in contemporary China. Uh, So even the Communist Party has initiated uh, various campaigns to reinstill within Chinese citizens uh, Chinese moral values that they are perceived to have lost since modernization Um, So while this is arguably to maintain national unity and to deter uh, civil unrest, it nevertheless points out that there's a problem uh, with contemporary Chinese uh, materialist society. So the Chinese practitioners I met, uh, they also spoke of Chinese society becoming uh, more selfish, like inward-looking, hedonistic, materialistic, uh, which leads to a wide range of social problems. Uh, so they saw Tibetan Buddhism, on the other hand, as offering a kind of compassionate worldview uh, for all sentient beings, uh, led by the Tibetan gurus who are in who have inherited the teachings and incarnation uh, lineages. So, in the words of one Chinese interlocutor I spoke with in Beijing, uh, he said that they, the Chinese practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, want to take this compassionate worldview and to make. The rest of china like tibet so this was a sentiment shared by many other practitioners i met so that is the not to return to a type of shangri-la <laughs> a type of uh, idealized tibet but they want to change society around them uh, from a focus on a false sense of self uh, from which all of these current evils i believe to stem uh, into a society which puts others first and uh, with exploitation and Uh, disregard for others in the environment disappears and so forth. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, this idea of uh, making China more like Tibet is very fascinating. Um, And a critical observation that you made in the book um, is that there's also a kind of idealization, right? That's that's becoming more obvious as we talk now. And also reimagining of Tibet and Tibetan Buddhism amongst Han Chinese practitioners, and that this kind of idealization is not unlike how Tibetan Buddhism is idealized and imagined in the West. right? So what does this tell us about the wider forces of the modern imagining of Tibetan Buddhism?
1: Yeah, I think there's uh, no doubt that Tibetan Buddhism in China is, is being idealized and imagined uh, in many similar ways to which it has uh, been idealized and imagined in the West. Um, part of the reason for this is that Tibetan Buddhism has become a global religion. Um, so it has been widely accepted, of course, by Hollywood stars and written extensively abo- upon, especially since the arrival of Tibetan Buddhism in America from the 1970s. So these books written originally in English have been also translated into Chinese. Uh, you can go to cafes in Beijing and find the same books uh, re- uh, translated into Chinese from English. Yeah. Further, there are, there are many books, uh, originally written by foreigners. So not just Tibetan teachers by foreigners, uh, which have been translated into Chinese. And um, some of these foreign writers are converts to Tibetan Buddhism, while others are writing from a type of uh, impressionistic outside perspective. So some of these books portray Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetans and Tibet in an idealized way. And this appears to have been picked up and adopted by a number of Chinese who read them elsewhere. Another factor is that little Tibet's, so-called little Tibet's, have appeared in a number of Tibetan areas outside of the Tibetan Autonomous Region, uh, such as Tang or Shangri-La in Daching um, Tibetan Autonomous Prefecture in Yunnan Province, which I explore in Chapter Five of the book. Um, so these are kind of state and tourist-sponsored sites of imagined Tibet's outside Tibet proper, where tourists and uh, variously pilgrims can get a taste of what uh, the real Tibet is apparently like. So specifically, the reconstruction of sites such as geltang uh, as Shangri-La and other places in a Tibetan landscape as Shambhala, for example, uh, this has no doubt gone some way in popularizing Tibet, uh, Tibetans and their faiths in an idealized way in China. Um, to add to this imaginative process, local Chinese writers, whether practitioners or not, Um, They're also writing personal accounts of their own spiritual epiphanies in the Tibetan landscape. So these accounts are often told in idealistic terms, in language that is reminiscent of Western uh, colonial language used in relation to the places they colonized, of taming the landscape or being tamed themselves by its mysterious appeal. Um, At the same time, I argue that this idealization of Tibetan Buddhism is not an entirely external phenomena being adopted by Chinese. Uh, Tibetan reincarnate lamas are similarly uh, perceived by lay Tibetans to be spiritual giants of meditation and philosophy, who have uh, attained high levels of realization as well as accompanying super, uh, supernormal powers. So the Tibetan landscape as well is also believed to be sacred with a, with, within a Tibetan Buddhist uh, worldview. Um, not just among Western and Chinese enthusiasts of Tibet. Um, so if one is sick, for example, uh, you can ingest the sacred soul of Tibet, which is believed to have uh, healing properties. Um, and Tibet is perceived to be a holy land among Tibetans. Uh, and Tibetans type of a kind of chosen people in much the same way as Jews perceive um, Israel to be a holy land and their own people as being chosen So in that sense, an apparently idealized vision of Tibet, uh, Tibetans and Tibetan Buddhism, uh, is not really entirely external and unique to this vision already found within uh, Tibetan Buddhist uh, worldview. So yeah, further, I argue that the way in which uh, Chinese practitioners see Tibet, Tibetans and Tibetan Buddhism uh, stands in stark contrast to the way in which they have been uh, traditionally portrayed in state propaganda accounts from the 1950s to the 1980s. And even these accounts even continue to some extent today. Um, yeah, these accounts pro- in the propaganda portray Tibetans as being backward, dirty, lazy, superstitious, and even animalistic. Um, in contrast, upon meeting real Tibetans in their home environment, uh, many Chinese practitioners I spoke with uh, noted how different they were to to how they were portrayed in state propaganda. So rather than being put backward, these practitioners interpreted Tibetan supposed backwardness with the actual lack of concern for material things because they have the Dharma from which, for which they will sell their own houses and properties even to go on pilgrimage. Uh, so what is termed as superstition by state propaganda, these practitioners see as the ultimate level of spiritual attainment and so forth. So they kind of uh, this is type of uh, reverse acculturation happening, where these practitioners attribute to Tibet, Tibetans and Tibetan Buddhism spiritual layers of meaning that override these negative images propagated by the state, and uh, it's also this contrasting foreignness of the Tibetan landscape in contrast to urban Chinese areas and the apparent differences between Tibetans and Han Chinese and between Tibetan Buddhism and Chinese religions that attracts a number of Chinese practitioners to follow Tibetan Buddhism in the first place. So this kind of foreign uh, difference that uh, makes it stand out in contrast to wider China. So in short, the idealization of Tibetan Buddhism, its people, and its landscape in China among Chinese practitioners, it comes from many directions, both externally from the West and internally within Chinese society itself.
0: Wow, thank you for this really detailed uh, analysis. Um, and, and let's go into the exciting chapters of the book. So first of all, chapter two of the book offers a very intriguing discussion um, on the incorporation of Guan Gong or Guan Yu or the Chinese God of War into the Karma Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, Here you're engaging with uh, Prasenjit Jurara's idea of superscription to show us how this Chinese deity has been reinterpreted. Um, Can you tell us more about this idea of superscription and the interpretation of new religious meanings across cultural boundaries?
1: Yeah, so uh, Guan Gong is, as outlined in Chapter 2, he's a kind of ubiquitous figure in the Chinese world, um, as well as in Tibetan and Mongolian uh, contexts at various junctures in history. yeah, He has often been called the Chinese god of war, uh, but he's in fact much more than that. He's uh, also, so as you said, based on the historical figure Guan Yu, um, a commander from the late Eastern Han Dynasty period. Um, and in his uh, post-mortem state as an anthropomorphic god, um, he's been considered a god of wealth, a god of protection and literature, protector of Chinese Buddhist temples, and also the main god sometimes of some Daoist temples, um, as well as a popular martial arts figure in, in contemporary uh, Chinese novels. In Hong Kong today, he's the patron of both triads and police in Hong Kong, which is uh, quite ironic <laughs> today. Um, but yeah, so he has he has been superscribed with so many different meanings, as I as I outlined in the in chapter two. So he was given ever grander titles by different emperors. Um, and he reached his the peak of his godhood during the Qing dynasty when he was given the most illustrious titles. Uh, yeah, he was also important in Sino-Tibetan borderland areas where he has at least in one case been associated with a local mountain god. He was also a, important as a protector in Gelug and uh, Kamakaju schools. And he was incorporated into the Kamakaju school by uh, of Tibetan Buddhism by the fifth Kamapa during the Ming dynasty. Um, and until recently, he was the protected deity of the 16th Kamapa's, uh, Tsurpo monastery. But after this, the sadhana text was lost. And it wasn't until the current 17th Gyalwang, uh, Kamapa, Kamapa um, had a vision in which Gong appeared to him that he was reincorporated into the Kamakaju school in 2005 when the Kamapa wrote a new sadhana for him. So, so there's a lot of interesting layers of, uh, of meaning that have been layered upon uh, Guangong, which have accumulated throughout Chinese history and now in the current uh, Sino-Tibetan context. So I used uh, Juara's idea of superscription to describe this process, whereby this God has been layered with new and sometimes divergent meanings by different parties, uh, even as certain historical continuities um, continue to exist in parallel with these new layers of meaning. So Guangdong became the kind of uh, symbolic blueprint for my book in the same way in which Guangdong has been superscribed with new meanings. So too has Tibetan Buddhism in greater China. Um, Tibetan Buddhism among Chinese practitioners is now intersecting with the traditional Chinese cosmology of gods, ghosts and ancestors. Uh, even while it is also intersecting with modernist discourses of the state and in Hong Kong a modernist Protestant worldview and the popular imagining of Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetans and Tibet, through a kind of shangri Laist lens as well. So despite these new layers of meaning, uh, many, con- many continuities that are present in Tibetan Buddhism in its home environment continue. And I subsequently argue that Tibetan Buddhism itself is not only uh, being superscribed with new meaning, but acts as a, a medium for Reorienting the lives, ideas, and practices of these Chinese practitioners. So it is simultaneously lay with new meaning, but is a is also a powerful worldview in its own right that serves to direct practitioners in new directions uh, to which they were not previously exposed. So Guangdong became a good uh, analogy for the wider ways in which Tibetan Buddhism is being superscribed, uh, yet is acting as a conduit. Uh, through which the lives of these practitioners are being uh, changed.
0: Very interesting. Um, And Chapter 3 is on the Confucian revival and Tibetan Buddhism. And here you explain that the CCP has been skillfully using Confucius for its own political ends. Um, So too are certain Han and other ethnic practitioners uh, layering Tibetan Buddhism with the new Confucian superscription. Um, So how compatible is Confucian thought with Tibetan Buddhism according to these um, diverse interlocutors that you have interviewed?
1: Yeah, so I found that quite a few uh, Chinese practitioners saw uh, Confucianism uh, or Confucian thought as being compatible with Tibetan Buddhism at a mundane type of human level. Um, So that is, they saw both Confucianism and Buddhism as being compatible in that they both promote moral values, um, ethics, harmonious relationships, and a wider harmonious society. Um, They even saw Confucianism as a kind of entry level into higher Buddhist practices. Um, Many emphasized that Buddhism was established in China historically in conjunction conjunction with um, uh, Confucian thinking and suggested that Confucian thinking prepared the way for Buddhism because of its emphasis on harmonious human relationships, self-cultivation and so forth. Um, So it's interesting they didn't talk about the historical rivalry between Confucianism and Buddhism or about the jealousy of the Confucian literati concerning the popularity of um, Tibetan Buddhist lamas during the Ming and Qing dynasties in the imperial court. Instead positive elements of Confucian-Buddhist interaction were played up and brought forward to the current context of the recent Confucian revival in China. So these interlocutors often spoke of Tibetan Buddhism being able to contribute to a truly uh, harmonious society, um, a slogan which is used by the CCP um, since Hu Jintao's era um, apparently drawn from Confucian thought. So it's sometimes hard to like distinguish the voice of these uh, interlocutors from the state on the mainland at least in regard to the relationship between uh, Confucianism and uh, Tibetan Buddhism in the current context. Other practitioners I I talked to on the other hand, uh, they thought that Confucianism and Tibetan Buddhism are not compatible at all. So some even saw Confucianism as a kind of impediment to the practice of Tibetan Buddhism. One interlocutor he described Confucianism as as this kind of a great wall that prevented uh, people from seeing the true nature of the reality of things uh, with this emphasis on hierarchical human relations and its many uh, rules that bind it at the kind of human level. Uh, so this latter group of uh, practitioners were often those who had been uh, traumatized, I found, by difficult life circumstances, such as the loss of a loved one or, or a difficult divorce. Um, so they wanted to escape these painful experiences uh, in a completely a transformative religion and they found this in Tibetan Buddhism. So they often described Tibetan Buddhism as being uh, beyond the world while Confucianism was still bound to it. Uh, and many of these practitioners were also attracted to the foreignness of Tibetan Buddhism to something that was uh, so different to everything they were accustomed to in the, in the Chinese world up to that point. Uh, so some of these practitioners, they escaped urban uh, centers in Eastern China to live in uh, Tibetan areas such as Geltang in the Tibetan Autonomous Prefecture. And some had been to Larungari in Sotau, uh, Sichuan province or to other nearby Tibetan areas. Um, so they spoke of their Tibetan masters as being immeasurably wise, having profound insight into the nature of the reality of things, even having uh, superna- supernormal powers and so forth. And so these qualities they could not find in Confucianism. So it's something that was so utterly for these practitioners to Confucianism that made them distinguish, make a sharp, uh, to sharply distinguish between the two traditions. Yeah.
0: Thank you for that. Um, And chapter four, um, Katsudo shifts our focus to Hong Kong and here, The chapter is titled Pragmatism, Protestantism, and Tibetan Buddhism in Hong Kong. Here, um, the chapter explores how Chinese practical religious approaches overlaps with Tibetan Buddhism. Um, So how have Chinese practitioners in Hong Kong have been navigating their beliefs and practices between all these uh, various uh, traditions and practices like Tibetan Buddhism, popular Chinese religions, materialism, and also Protestantism?
1: Yeah, so there's two two main groups of practitioners I met in uh, Hong Kong. Uh, some were from a popular Chinese religious background before turning to Tibetan Buddhism, while others were from a, a Catholic or Protestant background who had been educated within a Christian education system. So both popular religion and especially Protestant Christianity have been uh, particularly influential in Hong Kong. So one Hong Kong scholar has called popular religion in in Hong Kong a nameless religion, as it is uh, dispersed in a variety of forms throughout Hong Kong, and is not as institutionalized um, as in other parts of the Chinese world. Um, Of course, you have exceptions with the Chinese temples throughout the territory uh, that belong to a wider uh, institutional um, uh, group of temples, but in many ways, popular religion in Hong Kong is no longer clan-based and instead it's a set of practices that different individual families uh, follow. So these practices are therefore uh, usually concerned with propitiating uh, different gods for mundane uh, requests such as wealth increase, uh, success in studies, familial harmony and so forth. Um, So I found that many practitioners who came to Tibetan Buddhism from a popular Chinese religious background they often carried across similar mundane concerns into the practice of uh, Tibetan Buddhism and would request different rituals uh, from the Tibetan uh, teachers to solve these problems. Uh, so Tibetan Buddhism, of course, does provide for the fulfillment of mundane requests. Although the Tibetan teachers are met, they always emphasize that one's intentions are very important. So you can't just pray to Tsambhala, the Tibetan god of wealth, for example, and then strike rich. <laughs> Your intentions have and karmic history will, will influence the outcome. Yeah. So one Lama in Hong Kong, he told me that Chinese practitioners come to him with these requests to get rich or solve other mundane uh, problems. And then they have this kind of mentality of incense and results. So they put their incense out in the evening, expect the problem to be solved in the morning. So this is what I heard from many other Tibetan Lamas. They found that. Some Chinese practitioners, they want immediate results and don't properly understand theories concerning uh, karma. On top of popular Chinese religion, materialism has a strong presence in Hong Kong. Um, So the former colony was built by merchants and up until recently has been a major entrepot for um, uh, trade and commerce. Uh, So many Hong Kongers invest in the stock market. They enjoy buying designer brands. They look up to entrepreneurs such as Lee ka Sing as the as the peak of success. Um, so I don't want to suggest, as some have that um, as some have suggested, that Hong Kong is uh, addicted to material fetishism, um, as this would be a sweeping uh, generalisation. But in, in very broadly in general, materialist ideals are strongly rooted in the territory, and there is some qualitative uh, research that backs this up. So I found that the overlapping interest in popular religious practices and this materialism has led some practitioners to approach Tibetan Buddhism for mundane concerns as much as they approach it for uh, sociological ends. Um, other practitioners, however, were from a Protestant or Catholic background or had been educated in a Protestant or Catholic school. So they often looked upon popular this, this popular Chinese religion as superstitious and they believed that propitiating Buddhism, bod- Bodhisattvas for um, material and other mundane requests were antithetical to Buddhism. Uh, so they variously saw the rituals of Tibetan Buddhism for mundane requests as cultural accretions that have been added to Tibetan Buddhism in a Tibetan home environment that have distorted the original uh, message of Buddhism uh, so while they saw these rituals as a wise use of kind of skillful means to help Tibetans follow Tibetan lamas and benefit more widely from the actual message of Buddhism, uh, they didn't request mundane things from the root lamas themselves as they didn't believe in the efficacy of these rituals. So instead, these practitioners, they saw meditation as the core concern of Tibetan Buddhism Yeah, in much the same way that many Westerners see and interpret Tibetan Buddhism um, so these practitioners often frequent meditation centers in Hong Kong that are less traditional and more modern. And they also follow um, teachers such as uh, Mingor Rinpoche who offer a more universalistic and less kind of Tibetan traditional presentation of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, so one practitioner from a Protestant background, um, for example, she found that the traditional Tibetan Buddhist centers in Hong Kong were scary, in her, in her words. So uh, while well, she felt at home and learned a lot more uh, in Mingyur Rinpoche's uh, Turga center, center in uh, in Hong Kong and at his uh, talks. So practitioners from a popular religious background, on the other hand, were attracted to these more traditional centers and to the rituals offered there for uh, mundane concerns. So there's quite a contrast that I found between the practitioners from a popular religious or Christianized background in in Hong Kong.
0: This is uh, very fascinating findings. Um, uh, And Chapter 5 shifts our focus to the Deqing Tibetan Autonomous Prefecture in the Yunnan province in mainland China and draws our attention to the sacred Buddhist landscape of the area, which has been um, a location for environmentalist actions and ecotourism. Um, So how has this Tibetan region and the sacred landscape being reinterpreted and reimagined through these very different uh, modern discourses of environmentalism.
1: Yes. So um, the Qing Tibetan Autonomous Prefecture, after 2001 in particular, uh, became an important site of um, uh, conservation and ecotourism. And this followed a ban on logging after the floods in 1998, when the Yangtze River was uh, breached. So yeah, the local authorities have changed the name of the prefecture to Shangri-La. And the main town, uh, Gyeltang has also also now bears the same name um, as the prefecture. So the prefecture has, has since this time, since 2001, uh, attracted many Chinese and quite a few overseas uh, visitors as well. Yeah, the site of uh, Kawakarpo uh, Mountain Range, uh, one, of the, one of the eight um, abode mountains of Tibetan pilgrimage has become particularly popular for tourists as well as uh, pilgrims. And so Kawa Karpo is one of a retinue of mountain gods believed to inhabit the landscape in the area. And pilgrimage to this site is very important for Tibetans. Um, so this uh, Tibetan belief in the sacredness of the landscape and the myriad beings that inhabit its, its, uh, that inhabit its landscape is termed uh, geopiety by Chris Coggins and um in, in, his, in his and Emily uh, Ye's work on uh, this region. So a, a geopious worldview uh, maintains that deities and spirits inhabit the landscape and they're able to protect it and uh, bring consequences upon those who seek to damage this landscape or commit uh, socially unacceptable acts uh, within the human community in the vicinity of these uh, deities and uh, spirits. So the new uh, environmental Discourse, environmentalist discourse that is uh, currently popular in the prefecture and more widely in other parts of China. On the other hand, um, maintains that people uh, that people are in control of uh, preservation of the landscape. So while a geopious worldview maintains that there is interconnectivity between deities and spirits and people, um, and that their continued existence is mutually dependent, um, a Western environmentalist view is more anthropocentric. So it's more of a one-way relationship. So in chapter five, I wanted to explore how different Chinese and Tibetan practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism uh, interpret the place of uh, mountain deity cults, which have been Buddhistized to a large extent within or against this environmentalist uh, discourse. Uh, So what I found to my surprise was that many Chinese practitioners believe that Tibetan deities and spirits exist. And uh, some believe that disturbing their abodes would result in retribution. Um, So, for example, one Chinese practitioner I met in Giotang uh, believed that the Sino-Japanese team, there's a Sino-Japanese climbing team uh, that had climbed Mount uh, Kawakapo in 1991. Uh, They had perished because they offended the resident deity by climbing the mountain. Uh, She also believed that Tibetans who had made pilgrimage around Kawakapo uh, prior to the 2010 Ayushu uh, earthquake, um, had been spared during the earthquake. So, um, she really believes in the power of this deity to protect and to, uh, also take retribution out on those who kind of flaunt the, the, the geo-pious rules surrounding this mountain. Yes, she also makes pilgrimage, uh, to the mountain herself. And she said she feels the presence of Kawakapu and believes in his protection. Uh, she also prays to her root Lama while at the mountain facing Kawa and believes that both her Lama and the mountain god protect and guide her. So for her, the mountain gods and the other land-based beings uh in the Tibetan landscape, they have their own power and they're not reliant on people for protection. So there's quite a disconnect here between an environmentalist discourse and a Tibetan geopious worldview. But some practitioners, some Tibetan practitioners I met, however, they thought that local mountain gods and other land-based entities may or may not exist and some were even adamant that they are a figment of the imagination um although belief in them may help to preserve the environment so that is a good thing so even among tibetans themselves some tibetans are losing that geopious belief while some chinese are following it so it's quite an interesting uh, contrast however most Tibetans I, I spoke to, they, they saw these uh, beings as real and some thought that an entirely anthropocentric environmentalist paradigm was somewhat in opposition to their geopious worldview. So a member of the Kawagebo uh, Cultural Society in Chan, for example, uh, he emphasized that while protecting the environment was important, uh, the local deities and spirits are kind of family for Tibetans and environmentalism must not override this uh, belief, so in fact, it, if it does override this belief and a geopious view is no longer maintained by Tibetans, he felt that there would be a kind of disconnect between Tibetans and the environment, and this would lead to apathy uh, for the natural environment, so his society seeks to primarily uh, preserve these geopious beliefs and culture while a secondary outcome is environmental protection, um, but it's also interesting. Uh, yeah, so it's interesting to see how these formerly atheist Chinese uh, now buy into a geopious worldview, um, even as some Tibetans are leaving it behind. Uh, on the other hand, I found that there are also Tibetans who have lived in Chinese areas and have become secularized, um, but they've recently returned to to and uh, here they have again taken up a geopious view of the Tibetan landscape. Yeah, so quite a few different um, things happening in that chapter.
0: Yeah, this is a particularly interesting, uh, intriguing chapter. Yeah, like you said, it's a very um, kind of mind-boggling contradiction as well. Um, And chapter six, uh, when we go on, investigates the intersection between Chinese beliefs in ghosts and Tibetan Buddhism. So here you're asking a lot of really interesting and fascinating questions One of the questions was uh, why ghost culture was still so rooted among these Chinese practitioners and how Tibetan teachers such as Yongge Minger Rinpoche were addressing this issue among their Chinese followers. Um, And in the same chapter, you're also interested in another question and finding out um, what, if any, impact um, the CCP's anti-superstition campaigns and rhetorics had had on the beliefs of these practitioners concerning ghosts. So tell us what you found um, by asking these questions in your book.
1: Yeah, so I found that uh, many practitioners in uh, mainland China, uh, Hong Kong, and Taiwan um, believe that ghosts exist. Um, And the types of ghosts they spoke about were quite often those of the unattended dead, um, as portrayed in Chinese traditional cosmology as kind of shadows of the self, wondering about because descendants haven't attended to their, to their needs in the afterlife. so the ghosts they spoke of were also rather frightening uh, beings. Um, so ghosts of a more strictly Buddhist cosmology are usually a preta or hungry ghosts as has, as has been translated in uh, Chinese. So these ghosts are not a shadow of the self but they're fully reborn sentients who are located in one of the preta realms although some of them may move amongst us as well in the human realm. But preta generally portrayed in Buddhist art as having a kind of bloated stomach, uh, a, a tiny mouth through which food cannot pass, um, or the food they touch turns to fire and so forth. So they are kind of pitiful beings that live in uh, constant torment and are not not to be feared, but to to be uh, pitied. Um, so I found that while many practitioners referred to preta as hungry ghosts, uh, the ghosts they encountered themselves through their personal experiences were more often those of uh, Chinese popular accounts of ghosts. So uh, that is, you know, unattended ghosts that better fit the Chinese cosmology of gods, ghosts, and ancestors. Um, I found that Chinese ghost beliefs are still so prevalent among these practitioners uh, due to their own personal um, encounters with ghosts. So I also hypothesized that uh, ghost belief in Chinese society or Chinese societies in general is still... Prevalent because it is not uh, institutionalized, so it doesn't belong to any particular religion. It's dispersed thoroughly throughout popular Chinese religious practice, as well as among those who follow no religion at all or no religion in particular. So, of course, Tibetan Buddhism also has its own retinue of uh, uh, terrifying afterlife characters, such as evil spirits that may animate the dead body as a zombie if, if um, appropriate rites are not performed. For example. Uh, But Tibetan teachers uh, constantly remind the practitioners uh, not to fear uh, malevolent beings, but to view them with uh, pity as sentient beings uh, like ourselves who wish to be free from suffering. So often they reiterate that such beings appear to test our faith, but if if we see them as they really are, uh, that is ultimately uh, non-existent, uh, then we will have uh, conquered them. Uh, So many modernist Tibetan Buddhist uh, teachers who have taught in the West, they often downplay the existence of such beings altogether, as they know perhaps that a traditional account of Tibetan Buddhism may not be received as well among an apparently rational Western audience. So when these same teachers teach in the Chinese world, they often teach through the same rationalist lens that they would a Western audience. And this appeals to many young uh, modern Chinese practitioners, but there are also quite a large number of traditionalist Chinese practitioners who come to Tibetan Buddhism and they who still believe in uh, the existence of ghosts. Yeah, so such such teachers as Mingyur uh, Rinpoche, they may not always take into account this traditionalist worldview of God, gods, ghosts, and ancestors, and therefore elements of their message may stand in contrast to the ideas and views of some of these practitioners. Uh, so Minggu Rinpoche, in his talks in Hong Kong, for example, uh, spoke of the need to move on from a fear of ghosts, uh, and that they are ultimately created by our own minds. Uh, but many practitioners I met told me about personal encounters they had with ghosts prior to the conversion to Tibetan Buddhism, and that while they know the truth of Buddhism concerning the ultimate non-existence, they still held on to these frightening experiences. Um, on the other hand, I also met uh, Chinese practitioners who referred to ghost beliefs in much the same way as the CCP has in its anti-superstitious campaigns and rhetoric as figments of a fearful imagination. So while these practitioners did not deny their existence entirely, they often emphasized that certain natural phenomenon may be mistaken for ghosts, and much in much in the same way that CCP publications ha- have done. Uh, So these practitioners often used the rationalism uh, of party rhetoric in conjunction with uh, modernist Tibetan Buddhist teaching to place ghosts within their own worldview as beings not to be feared. Um, And that more important in the wider scheme of things was overcoming what they call the kind of ghost of one's heart or sin mo, sin gui. So that is this type of delusional thinking uh, concerning existence in general. So of course, the wider Tibetan Buddhist beliefs concerning uh, existence and liberation from cyclic cyclic existence uh, differs greatly from CCP rhetoric. But it's interesting how how at certain junctures, uh, both the scientific rationalism of the state and their own faith uh, congeal. Um, And it is likely that these Chinese practitioners take this view, at least on the mainland, from their Tibetan teachers, uh, some of whom have written books on the compatibility of Tibetan Buddhism with science and the practicality of Tibetan Buddhism for modern Chinese society, um, that is not an idealistic but compat- uh, compatible tradition with rationalism, science and progress against this, the claims of the state that it is ultimately a kind of opium of the people. Um, so their faith is justified through the rhetoric of the state, but ultimately stands in contradiction to it.
0: Mm, this is a very interesting finding um and lastly in your opinion what kinds of potential developments of sino-tibetan buddhism might be possible for us to see in the future
1: yeah this is quite a uh, maybe a difficult question to answer Yeah, it's very hard to see. i mean so many things are happening and changing in china but i think perhaps we will see more uh, examples of tibetan masters uh, adapting tibetan buddhism to Chinese culture as we have seen in the case of the reincorporation of Guangdong into the Kamakaju school uh, by the 17th uh, Kamapa. Um, as, at the same time, I think there's likely to be ongoing tension between the Tibetan religious and state efforts to impose their own uh, Sinified understanding of Tibetan Buddhism uh, as Power Powers has uh, explored in his book on how the state is seeking to authenticate certain, for example, Chinese Buddhist apocryphal works within Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, Which is largely rejected by Tibetan uh, monastics. So, that is, I think, the origin and the origin of the adaptation of Tibetan Buddhism to the Chinese world and the nature of the adaptation are likely to be important to both the Tibetan religious elite and Chinese followers of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, So, I think there may be further state led attempts to flatten out the differences between Chinese and Tibetan Buddhism. Um, At the same time, I think the influence of the Tibetan tradition uh, in Chinese societies is likely to grow. Um, So while while there no doubt will be ongoing adaptations, uh, I think the unique guru-disciple relationships between uh, Tibetan root lamas and the Chinese uh, disciples will likely be key to the surviving uh, authentic teachings of Tibetan Buddhism um, that is perceived to have been passed down in unbroken lineages since the time of the Buddha, um, the website of the Larungal uh, Buddhist Institute in Sichuan is, is largely maintained by Chinese disciples uh, who help to d- disseminate the teachings of their Tibetan masters uh, with whom they have this close relationship. So Chinese all over China are able to access these teachings in their own language and read the hagiographies of these Tibetan teachers. So as long as these centers of Tibetan spiritual power remain, I, see, I think maybe there'll be further growth and um, influence of Tibetan Buddhism in Chinese societies. If you look in Taiwan, already there's a a very large following. In Taipei, you can go to just about any block in the city and find a Tibetan Buddhist meditation center. Uh, So it has a very large popular following in in Taiwan. And the Kamapa is very influential in these developments. Um, So this reincorporation of Guangdong The ceremony for that was uh, actually televised live on Taiwanese television in 2005 and also Kamakaju uh, monasteries in Taiwan. They are also a mixture of Tibetan and Chinese architectural designs. So I think we'll see more adaptations of the Tibetan tradition to the Chinese world such as these, Um, but the core teachings uh, based on the same scriptures and, and lineages that have been passed down, I think they're likely to continue without major Influence from Chinese uh, Buddhist traditions such as Chan Buddhism, for example. So, of course, outside the direct transmission of Tibetan Buddhism to Chinese disciples, there are also many uh, Tibetan influence, new forms of Sino-Tibetan Buddhism uh, initiated mostly by Chinese uh, religious practitioners. So we may see new forms of Sino-Tibetan religion such as, uh, such as these taking root in the future, but, uh, I don't expect this to happen really within the strictly uh, Tibetan Buddhist circles or among Chinese followers.
0: Well, thank you for that expert um, analysis and I guess predictions for the future. I guess we'll have to see what happens. Um, well, we've actually taken up a lot of your time. Um, we've come to 60 minutes already. So I will ask the final question, traditional to our uh, New Books Network. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about uh, the projects that you're currently working on now?
1: Yeah, so at the moment, um, I haven't actually got a concrete project I'm working on, but looking at working on <laughs> maybe the research going forward, um, so I'd like to look at more research into the Republican-era monks uh, who went to Tibet and studied under the Tibetan uh, Tibetan masters in Lhasa, uh, such as Nanghai and uh, Fatsun and other um, Chinese uh, monks, and who brought back the teachings to China. I think it would be really interesting to look more at the Biographies and also their translations into Chinese of Tibetan Buddhist works. Um, So, I'd like to examine the significance also of their autobiographies, their biographies, and their teachings for um, current uh, Chinese practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism, or alternatively, whether they have kind of fallen into disuse with the current uh, focus on the teachings of Tibetan masters who Chinese now have direct access to. Um, so I think that'd be interesting to look at that kind of uh, continuation of the significance, or otherwise, of the, their works from the Republican era. That's not really a concrete project at the moment, but going forward, I'd like to develop that that further. Yeah.
0: Well, I think the Sino-Tibetan connection, right, and Buddhist connection, is something that's been overlooked for quite a long time. So it's definitely really exciting uh, to hear that you're working on this. Well, thank you so much um, for taking the time to talk to us about your really exciting book, a book that's really addressing a lot of issues that um, haven't been adequately addressed um, in either Buddhist studies or in Sinology or in Tibetan studies. So this is a really exciting project. So. Really grateful that you're sharing it with us.
1: Uh, Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be on your show and to share my work and to um, give some some feedback. Thank you.
0: Great. Well, until next time.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.